The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 21, reading from verse 12 to verse 22. You'll find that on page 826 of your pew Bible. Matthew 21 and verse 12, this is the word of God. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. We confess our gracious God, there is no skill or ability of speech or hearing within us, save that your spirit works in us at this moment. Our need for you is absolute And what seems impossible for us is eminently possible with you. Bless us then, we pray. Warn us and encourage us by your word that we, your people, may stand fast in faith, trusting in you. Bless the words of my mouth and the hearing of all our ears that it might be acceptable in our sight because you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, last week, Pastor Rockin brought us the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And the triumphal entry signifies the start of a a new section, a new tone to the Gospel of Matthew. And frankly, for a number of chapters, it's a dark tone. It's a tone of conflict and judgment and woe and curse. Jesus begins as the king entering the royal city, he begins a series 
of judgments and curses upon the unbelieving people of Israel. Indeed, on the nation of Israel, not to say all were excluded from his mercy and his grace, but as a nation, he's come to bring a judgment upon them. Here we see Jesus entering Jerusalem as the great prophet, priest, and king of Almighty God, coming to deliver some, but coming to cast off others. Well, the lesson before us is simply this. Messiah has come to gather a people of all nations, to gather a people of all nations. And in doing this, he will cast off those who are unbelieving and bring in and graft in others who are of faith. Messiah has come to gather a people out of all nations, and in doing so, he will cast off those who are unbelieving and gather in those who are of faith. And we see this tone of judgment and cursing to many, but mercy to some, laid before us in the two texts this morning. At verse 12, we see, and this is a change to my, uh, the, my bulletin that was, uh, sorry, my outline that was sent out. We see firstly in verse 12, the glory departing from the temple. The glory of God departing from the temple. It doesn't get more judgment infused than that. But secondly, we see that the king has come to curse Israel, verse 18. The glory is departing from the temple and the king is cursing Israel. Again, keep in mind, we're seeing the grand scheme of the gospel. Christ has come to save and to redeem and to make a new people out of Jew and Gentile. And yet some rejected him in that role. Some rejected his claims. He cast them off. They're cut off from his covenant purposes, but others are brought in. We see that firstly in the glory departing from the temple. Pastor Ocken pointed out last week that Christ has come as Messiah. He's come as king into his city. And he reminded us that the coming of Christ in the triumphal entry was first of all to fulfill scripture. Secondly, revealed was the humility of Christ as king, riding as he did upon a donkey. And third, he came to take his place as king. And the scenes before us point to each of those points. If the thesis statement is Jesus is king, is Messiah, in chapter 21, 1 to 11, then the rest of these passages before us prove that point over and over again. Scripture being fulfilled is once again at the forefront of our text this morning. We see that the humility of the king does not exclude his role and function in judgment. And the king takes his throne in the midst of his people in order to judge some and bring in others. And is it not telling that in Matthew's gospel, the first act of the king who has come into his city is this? It is to go into the temple, the place of God's presence, and deal with worship issues. That ought to be telling to us. The first thing our Lord does is set his sight upon the dwelling place of God with men, the temple. 
Jesus has been concerned with the temple and worship, his entire ministry. We know that one of the first acts he does in John's gospel is to cleanse the temple, chapter 2. Now, just days before his death, what do we find him doing? We find him apparently cleansing the temple once again. What did the temple become during our Lord's time? Well, as you would walk into the outer courts of the temple, you would find that the temple had become a trading place. The place of worship had become a place of commerce. You would find animals, the stench of animals, the trade of animals. You would find money changers. Our Lord says that the outer courts of the temple where this was taking place had become a den of robbers. The place of worship had become a place of theft and unjust commerce. And it ought not be lost upon us, friends, that this was taking place not in the Holy of Holies, not in the holy place, but in the outer courts. What were the outer courts? The courts of the Gentiles. Don't lose sight of that. It's the courts of the Gentiles that has become this marketplace. In other words, those Gentiles that wanted to come and worship Jehovah and were allowed into the outer courts had their worship thoroughly marginalized by the noise and stench of farm animals, by the oppression of of unjust money changers. Friends, we need to understand and comprehend what a profound offense this must have been to God. And what a profound offense this was to Jesus. The worship environment of the Gentiles had become a den of robbers. There could be nothing more incongruous to the picture that is before us than what we see. It had become a place of commerce, a place of daylight robbery at the expense of the Gentiles. Their worship was sidelined. And this really tells us what the Jews thought of the Gentiles, doesn't it? They wouldn't do it in their own courts, but they would do it in the outer courts. This tells us what the Jews thought of Gentiles, even those who had come to worship the Lord, who had come to unite themselves with the people of Israel and yet find themselves essentially excluded from the worship of the temple. The Jews hated them. The Jews despised them. They squeezed them out. And it's not just the, Jew, the Gentiles that they're squeezing out. Let's be clear. They're saying, while we don't have any room for the Gentiles, they're really saying we do not have room for God's covenant purposes, which include the Gentiles. They're saying we're quite happy being the Jews, the chosen people ourselves. We don't want anyone else. They're resisting and rejecting God's plan of salvation made known to his people throughout the generations. So enamored are they by their position as the first, they're despising that which is last. And friends, we ought not be ignorant either. This plan of Jew and Gentile had been prophesied to the Jews for hundreds, even thousands of years This ought not have been strange to them to see the Gentile in their midst. God had promised Abraham, the father of the nation, that in your seed all the nations, not just Israel, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
It was spoken to them by the prophets, Isaiah 49, verse 6. It's God speaking to the son, his servant. God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. They even sung this in their praises. We'll see this tonight in Psalm 87. Among those who are found in Zion, the city of God, we find people from Rahab, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. The nations were to be brought in according to God's mercy and his revealed will. But what do we find here? We find the Gentiles pushed out, marginalized, despised. This was the temple. The temple of God. Well, actually, it was Herod's temple. Make no mistake about this. This is the second temple. This is not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was a replacement, a permanent replacement for the tabernacle. We've seen what the tabernacle is on Sunday nights. is the very dwelling of God with men. Where the glory cloud descended upon it, the glory of the Lord in unapproachable light filled the tabernacle, even to the point where Moses could not enter. When the temple of Solomon is erected, we see the same thing taking place. The glory of the Lord filling the temple. But because of the apostasy of Israel, friends, that temple was destroyed in 586, ransacked by the Babylonians. Yes, the Jews who came back from their exile built something approaching Solomon's temple. It was a rather modest affair. The temple into which Christ now walks, let's be clear, it's Herod's temple. It's Herod's temple. Now, now, notwithstanding that, it's clear that God has attached his name to the temple in some way. Jesus says here, my house, the temple, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But make no mistake, friends. This is Herod's temple. Consider this. We are never told that the glory cloud went into this temple. It might have, but we're never told that. We certainly know the Ark of the Covenant was not in this temple. What of the temple? What of God's presence in this place? What we see now in Matthew's cleansing of the temple at the end of Christ's ministry. Again, there's one at the beginning of his ministry, John 2. There's this one at the end of his ministry. What we see now in this moment, Matthew 21 verse 12 following, is not so much a cleansing of the temple for a renewed use of worship. Jesus is not casting out the money changers so that worshippers can again flood in. But it's actually a symbolic departure of the glory of God from the temple. That's perhaps the most profound and damning thing that could ever be said of the house of God, that the glory has departed from it. How do we get there from this passage? Well, we trace out biblical prophecy and its fulfillment. Remember, Pastor Rockin said this is about fulfillment of Scripture. We trace out biblical prophecy and the life of Christ with respect to this temple. I'm saying to you, this is about the departure of the glory of God from his temple. Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 10, a stage by stage, a court by court departure of the glory of God from the temple of God. 
by court, the glory of God moves out from the holy of holies, the holy place, to the outer courts, to the threshold. And then finally, the glory of God in Ezekiel's prophecy leaves the temple completely and goes into lights on the mountain that is to the east of Jerusalem. We know it. It's called the Mount of Olives. What do we see here in this text and also in Matthew chapter 24? We see Jesus, verse 17, leaving leaving the temple. Leaving the temple. What happens in Matthew 24, verse 1? Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left there one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then we read this. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The glory of God, the presence of God, Emmanuel, God with us, walks out of the temple and sits on the Mount of Olives, just as it was prophesied by Ezekiel. This is not so much a cleansing so that the nations might come in once again to renewed, purified, and reformed worship. But this is a condemnation upon the Jews and upon what they had made of their present temple. Consider this. Jesus as the great high priest responsible for worship and his people's access to God is leaving the temple for good. Jesus, as the great king, remember the king of olden days, was to cast down the false high places of worship, contaminated worship, and reestablish true worship in the nation. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus, as prophet, is bringing these covenantal curses, the woes upon Israel that he'll pronounce in chapter 24 and 25. He is bringing them upon the covenant people because of their apostasy and their rejection of him. The triumphal entry is about Christ the king, Christ the prophet, Christ the priest, entering the royal city and asserting his authority. Here's Messiah taking all of Israel's great offices in one moment. And he begins to distance God from God's people. At least the covenant people. But that's not all he's come to do. He's not just come to judge, to curse, and cast off. If there is a cleansing in this passage, and there is of sorts with the temple... There is most certainly a cleansing of people. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Did we see that? In the midst of this remarkable narrative, the people who came to him at the beginning of his ministry are still coming to him at the end of his ministry. In the midst of casting off the temple and casting off God's historical people, there are still those of the people of God being healed and cleansed and restored and brought into this kingdom. It's not only the blind and the lame and the sick, it's the children. They're crying out, Hosanna, verse 15, Hosanna to the son of David. They're worshipping the Messiah. And it's this reason, when they hear the children and they see the mighty signs of Christ, that who? The scribes and the chief priests saw the wonderful things he did. They were indignant. 
That should be staggering to us. God's people indignant at God doing great wonders in their midst. What a scandal. Jesus says to them again to fulfill all scripture. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. In other words, what's happening to them there and then, he's saying, this is a very fulfillment of your own scriptures. Can you not see, he says, that which you were told is coming to pass. What's happening? Jesus is saying the time for this temple is over. Jesus is saying the time for those who think they are something is over. You see, he's just, it's an it's a undertone in a sense, an undercurrent. The Gentiles, they've been marginalized here. But it's interesting, is it not, that Jesus said effectively to a Gentile these very words, John 4, verse 21, but the hour is coming and now is when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, the temple, will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God's looking for worshipers. The Jews weren't worshipers. They denied him. This is no different really to what our Lord said to the Samaritan woman. The time for this temple is done. Why? Because I'm the temple. John chapter 2. He is the dwelling place of God with man. He is the great high priest. He is the true sacrifice. No more need for this temple. And the filth and corruption that comes with it. The temple would be destroyed. 70 AD. And many of the Jews who were apostate, were cast off. But what have we seen? There are still some who are saved. Still some who are saved. In fact, the Gospels and Acts speak of believing Jews being united in Christ with believing Gentiles to form the church of God, to form the people of God, the new Israel of God. Jesus is is identifying we're entering a new stage of redemptive history. Jesus is here uniting in himself two disparate peoples, making them one person, one group, removing the dividing wall of separation. So Jew and Gentile now have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism Jesus is writing Ichabod above the gates of the temple the glory has departed and he's saying I'm forming a new temple a new people in himself friends let's just apply this very gently to ourselves let's take great care we are the covenant people of the day and if you look at the church broadly speaking the covenant people of the day Broadly speaking, we'll see the same kinds of apostasy in the church that we saw in ancient Israel. doesn't necessarily look the same, but it's the same kind of apostasy where Jesus is acknowledged by word, but people deny his power, deny his authority, deny his claims. It's a Jesus of their own making. In other words, the covenant people dare not presume upon our position as covenant people 
as the Jews were cast off for their unfaithfulness, their lack of faith, so too can we be cast off because of a lack of faith. Others can be grafted in if we are cast off. Why not? We've been grafted in, have we not, at the Jews being cast off. Let's be careful. Let's be careful. Moreover, we're reminded here, are we not, of the expansive plan of salvation. Oh, it's expansive. It's not narrow. It's not to one people group or one certain kind of person. God has always designed to save Jew and Gentile alike. And we are evidence of that, are we not? I mean, are we not? How many of us, according to the flesh, are Jews? But according to the Spirit, we're Israelites. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been brought in. And we, might, we can never withhold that from anyone else. It simply cannot be that way. We see these shreds of light and of life and salvation in the narrative. But we would have to say, friends, the overall picture is one of darkness and judgment. And that judgment continues with its sheds and rays of light, continues then into verse 18 with the fig tree. And here we see the king cursing Israel in judgment. You see, it's not only the inclusion of the Gentiles to the covenant people that's in view. It's also the inclusion of the Gentiles at the expense of a nation. It's sobering stuff. The inclusion of the Gentiles at the expense of a nation, those Jews that were unfaithful. Again, that's not to say God has cast off his promise. It's not to say his promise to Israel is annulled. No, his promise is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, making a new Israel from Jew and Gentile alike. But the narrative here from 21 onwards to the end of of Matthew's gospel is many of the Jews rejecting the Messiah. And why were they rejected? Because they were found to be unfruitful. They were found to be without faith in the Messiah. That's the root cause. They were found to be without faith. There's little doubt if you turn the pages into chapter 22, chapter 23, chapter 24, chapter 23, you'll find seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. It's more or less their resistance to him and Jesus as the great prophet speaking judgment upon the Jews. Again, friends, this was foretold. This was foretold in the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, we, we read this, and the Lord said, call this child's name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Those are staggering words. That's what's happening at this moment in Matthew's gospel. There is a people who were God's people who are becoming not God's people. And God is saying, I will not be your God. Why? Because you've rejected my Messiah. You've refused me and everything that I have offered. And that's the narrative of the fig tree. The narrative picks up on the next morning and Jesus is walking and he becomes hungry, we read. He sees the fig tree by the wayside. It looks fruitful. The leaves are all out. But he goes to the fig tree to find figs, finds nothing. And Jesus curses the tree. 
May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. In other words, the fig tree had an appearance of being fruitful. It had an appearance of being health. Outwardly, it looked great, but it bore no fruit. It is a perfect picture of the hypocrites of the Jews. A perfect picture of them. Outwardly, they looked great. They did all the supposed things and more that they were meant to do, by the way. And yet bore no fruit. Bore no fruit of faith. Bore no fruit of repentance. Bore no fruit of caring for the poor. Bore no fruit of evangelism and so on. The tree here is a a perfect picture of what is going to happen to Israel. Now, Lord makes it clear in chapter 24, verse 32, when there's the lesson from the fig tree explained. He says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have taken place. They're going to be cut off. AD 70. They're cut off from the kingdom. Jerusalem is destroyed. AD 70. Disaster comes upon the people of Israel. The fig tree is a picture of their spiritual health, and the speed of the fig tree's demise is a picture of how demise will come upon the children of Israel. Two lessons. Two lessons that we see here. And the first lesson is prompted by the disciples' question of verse 20. The disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Overnight, the fig tree's dead. Cursed by its maker, dead the next day. A bit like my tomato plants. Except I don't think they've been cursed by their maker. Jesus replied to them, how did this happen so quickly? It's informative. And it points us to the necessity of faith. This is our first lesson. It doesn't say that the fig tree withered by the almighty power that Jesus has as the eternal son of God. It it doesn't tell us that because Jesus answers them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Mount of Olives, they're looking at it. If you've got faith, he says, you can say, be uprooted and be cast into the sea. Jesus is connecting his ministry and the ministry of his apostles and the ministry of his church to faith, not to the inherent power that might lie within us. Really important. He says, if you have faith, you will do these things and more. Remember this, Jesus filled with the spirit at his baptism conducted his ministry under the power of the Holy Spirit, cursed this fig tree and the next day it's dead. That's to say also the disciples, the apostles, the church, we as Christians, filled with the Holy Spirit and trusting in God by faith, we will do similar things. Not that we're going to be doing miracles. The age for that's gone. But Jesus is connecting faith to the great power that has been exhibited and is on show. We, by faith, are inseparably connected to the almighty power of God. 
Our union with Christ means that we are inseparably bound to him and the power of Christ, the power of God Almighty becomes available to us and in us. And Jesus says this power is available to you by faith and by prayer. If you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown it into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Faith and prayer. Prayer and faith. These are the things that connect us to our Father who is in heaven. We will not do great signs by the power of faith. But through the prayer of faith, God will do great signs on our behalf. Let's get that clear in our minds. We now will not do the great signs that the apostles did, though they did the great signs that Jesus did. But God will do those great signs for us if we have faith and if we ask him in faith. The point is this, firstly, we are not left powerless in this world. We might feel we are, but we are not left powerless in this world. Our Lord says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Dear Christian, your Father in heaven stands ready, willing and able to do great wonders on your behalf if you believe and if you ask him according to his will and in faith. I was just talking to some of you before church about asking for an an unbelieving relative who for years has resisted the devil and now on their deathbed, resisted Christ, sorry, and on their deathbed has accepted Christ. Those are the great wonders God is doing. Turning the hearts of unbelievers towards him. The miracle of faith. That which we cannot do for ourselves or for anyone else, God does for us. Here's an invitation to you, dear Christian, to fully enter into the glorious presence and power of God through faith and through the prayer of faith. That invitation is to you today. Jesus says you will do these things while God will do them for you. If you believe and ask, it's a call to each one of us here today, isn't it? Is our faith really engaged in our prayer life? Do we have a prayer life for a start? And is our faith really engaged? Do we come to God with expectation, humble expectation? Because he will do all his wonderful will according to his, uh, according to his pattern and his determination. But do we come to faith, come to God in faith? expecting great things of him that's the first lesson and the second lesson is connected to it because the second lesson we learn connects the issue of faith to the issue of the cursed and withered fig tree it is precisely the absence of faith that christ cast his people off it is precisely because of their apostasy that he cast them off It is precisely this image that is seen in the fig tree that looks good outwardly but bears no fruits. This is what Jesus is condemning in the covenant people. People who say they belong to God but bear no fruit. They bear no fruit. The Jews love darkness rather than light. 
They pursued their own self-righteousness as opposed to the righteousness that comes from God. They despised God's plan of salvation, which included the Gentiles. They lacked the fruit of repentance. They lacked the fruits of faith. They lacked the fruit of pursuing God, of caring for the poor. And when Messiah came, they rejected him. It's clear. They rejected him. Because they lacked faith, they produced no fruit. They were cast off and cut off. To use language from another passage of scripture, branches were cut off and thrown into the fire that other branches might be grafted in. It's the warning of the frig tree, fruitless and cursed, just like Israel. But it's the promise also of blessing, is it not, that connects us by faith to the almighty power of our great God. Friends, our Lord is revealing something to us about the nature of his kingship, the nature of the kingdom in which we dwell, and the nature of the citizens of the kingdom. We've already seen and we see it here again that birth, timing of birth, priority in life, position, so-called outward performance means little to God if it is without faith. And it should mean little to us if it is without faith. Faith is what counts. And we know that scripture teaches that faith is the gift of God. Not of us, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's no room for boasting in ourselves in the kingdom of Christ. Of all people, we we ought to be the most humble people on the face of the earth. Because we know that everything we have is of the goodness of God of God there's no room for boasting because the kingdom of heaven comes to us by grace and the kingdom of heaven is expansive all kinds of people of every nation tribe and tongue all kinds of people from different socio-economic positions those who are spiritually lame and blind those who are little children to such belongs the kingdom of heaven These are the kinds of people that Jesus came to save. Those who know they're nothing. Those who know they have a problem. And their problem lies with God and it's the problem of sin. Consider this. Here Jesus, in the next four chapters, is going to pronounce curse and woe and judgment upon his people. And yet, verse 14, here is Jesus removing the effects of the curse upon the lame and the blind and the sick. And we are just days away and pages away in this gospel from the time where Christ himself would be nailed to a cross. To what end? The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That's why, dear Christian, if you're of faith today, hold fast to Christ. Bear fruits in keeping with your repentance and your faith. Why? Because the curse and death and sin and all its terrors have been far removed from you. And they were placed on the shoulders of our Savior at the cross, never again to haunt the people of God. 
My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. That's our confession today, is it not? If you're here today without Christ, know this. Please hear this. The curse of your sin and of a broken covenant lies not on Christ's shoulders, but your shoulders. You must hear this. Condemnation awaits you. Hell awaits. And we would not have you go to hell. The simple message is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Gracious God, we honor you and bless you. We praise you that according to Christ's great kingship, he has not cut us off or cast us off. Have mercy upon us, Lord God. Bless each of us with faith, a faith that loves, a faith which loves you and loves each other and serves each other. Bless richly, Lord God, all our efforts to honor you. Forgive us when we fail to honor you and soften our hearts, Lord God, so that we might always cling to the Savior. And for any that are without you this day, Lord, have mercy, we plead. Turn their hearts unto you. Forgive them. Show mercy that your name might be praised as the day of salvation comes to this house. For we ask all this in the precious name of our Savior. Amen.